As we look at Hebrews chapter 7, in just a few moments, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, this passage, if we can just capture the beauty of it, if we can just begin to understand it, and we're not going to fully exhaust it this morning, but as we walk through it together, I think that if we can, it will strengthen us for the days to come, whatever it is that God may have for you or for me. So I ask that you join me in walking through it carefully and listening for what God has, because I'm telling you, you're going to need the strength of these verses in the days to come. So I wondered as we get started this morning, if you have ever known the joy of really having someone pray for you. You don't have to raise your hand, but, but like really praying for you. Someone who has interceded for you, in, and, and maybe over the course of maybe even years. Uh, I, I had uh, three ladies that as I was growing up, and as I, I guess as I was a young adult, really stood in the gap for me, and they did that for years until they died, and all three of them are gone. They're with the Lord now, uh, but, but uh, Barbara Slight and Edith Crowell and Sharon Linder, people from my home area in Northern California, literally stood by me over the tumultuous years of trying to figure out what life was about and over the process of growing in the Lord, those ladies, I, I can't begin to say this morning what their prayers have probably affected my life. I don't know. Only eternity will reveal what their prayers actually did for me. It's a joy to be prayed for. and It's a joy to be prayed for by someone who really cares and loves and knows you. But it's even more than that. Because the prayer itself, while it wraps us, in a sense, in the arms of that person and says you're loved and you're cared for, is connecting to divine power on my behalf. An intercessory prayer is connecting to divine power on my behalf. And so you aren't just praying to make someone else feel good. You aren't just wrapping your arms around them so they can know that you care. You're wrapping your arms around them and in one sense standing between them and God and presenting them to God, connecting them to that divine power. That's a beautiful thing. And that is what we're hearing about in an even more incredible way in Hebrews chapter 7. I want us to read Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 11 through, the, through verse 25 this morning, through the... Uh, that kind of section of scripture this morning, and I want you to hear what really is taking place in this aspect of intercessory prayer. And it follows exactly on what Chet prepared us for with Genesis uh, and the passage there. This is what God says in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law... What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now, let's just stop so that we make sure that we're all together on the logic here. Are you following what, what the author of Hebrews is saying? He's saying, what need is there for any other priest if the order of Aaron still stands? But, but there is another priest he's presenting, and we're kind of jumping into the context here in chapter 7. There is another priest, the Lord Jesus himself, and he does not follow the Aaronic priesthood. So why? What's the deal? Why would we have someone coming from outside the Aaronic priesthood? So he's going to answer that question. 
Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. So who's he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus. What tribe did Jesus belong to? Judah. Did, did priests come from Judah? No. Where did they come from? Levi, right, that's the Aaronic priesthood, so he's reasoning with us through this process. Why would there be a priest coming from outside the tribe of Levi? Why outside the Aaronic priesthood? Why this one who now is being told to us is after the order of Melchizedek? Verse 14, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. We're going to parse through that in a moment. For it is witness of him, of this one who follows in the order of Melchizedek, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is quoting from Psalm 110. Verse 18, on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. So the Aaronic priesthood was not on the basis of an oath. But this one, this Lord Jesus, who is in the order of Melchizedek, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now listen, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, Hold on to this. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me read that last verse one more time. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We could talk about a number of things that the Lord Jesus Christ is doing presently. He is God, and he has many functions and responsibilities. But do you know that this particular passage highlights one of the most beautiful things that he's doing right now? that Jesus is actually doing presently. And here's what it is. He is interceding for you. So Jesus himself is connecting through intercessory prayer with the Father, connecting you with divine power. We want to investigate that this morning and carry away from it the reality and the hope and the confidence of what that really means. And I want to catch it for us in some very simple ways. First, because Jesus is alive forever, he is uniquely qualified as the one and only intercessor who is able to save us at all times, in every circumstance, 
completely. So there's never a time, there's never a place, there's never a situation in which Jesus is not able to deliver us, from which he's not able to save us. Why? Because he's alive forever and he is interceding. But let me make that simpler for us. Jesus' indestructible life guarantees his endless and efficacious intercession on our behalf. In other words, Jesus lives and so he intercedes effectively for me and for you. But let's make it even simpler. So let's take those statements and draw them down to a very, very simple statement that I think we can all carry with us this morning. Here it is. Because Jesus lives and intercedes, we're safe. That's really what we're being told here in Hebrews chapter 7. Because Jesus lives and living intercedes, we are safe. So as we travel through this morning, surveying some very important ideas that bring us to this reality and catching some of the context of this, of this idea, I want us to hold on to this idea because we're going to be coming back to it all the way through. Jesus lives forever, and because he lives, and because he intercedes, we are safe. Now, the book of Hebrews, to give you an overview sense of it, is really, in one sense, all about the superiority of the Lord Jesus in everything, in everything. And so it begins by talking about, in the early parts of the book, his superiority to the angels, Yes, he is superior to the angels. All the angels of God, in fact, it says, worship him. And he's superior to Moses. He's as superior to Moses as a son is compared to a servant, it says early on in the book of Hebrews. It says that he's as superior as the builder of a house is to the house when it comes to Moses. So in that sense, the author of Hebrews is saying it's like Moses was the house, but Jesus is the builder of the house. Well, I don't go to my home and say, I think my home's a little bit better than I am. I, I hope my home isn't better than I am because it would be a sad statement on me, I'm afraid. But, but uh, that aside, Jesus is that far superior. He is the one who made the house, not just the house. And he's superior, it says in the book of Hebrews, to the old covenant. He's He's built a covenant on better promises, promises, get this, that are written on our hearts versus written on stone. That's the better covenant that Jesus introduces us to. He is superior to the whole old covenant, and he's better, he's superior to the old sacrifices, because you probably heard it in Hebrews chapter 7 here, in the old system, there, were, there was one priest after another, but also there was one sacrifice after another because no sacrifice, not all the blood of bulls and goats, could wash away sin. But Jesus, it says in the book of Hebrews, made one sacrifice forever and thus dealt with our sin. One sacrifice forever. He's superior to all the old sacrifices and he's superior to all the old blood that flowed from those sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 12, I think it's worth noting here in verse 24, it's speaking about Jesus and his blood. It says that we come to Jesus 
the mediator, verse 24 of chapter 12, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, now listen, to the sprinkled blood, that's Jesus' blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Do you remember the story of Abel? So Abel, who is Abel? He's the first one to be murdered. Yep, one of the first people in the Bible, and the very first one to be murdered. His brother, Cain, killed him. And from the ground, it says, it was as though the blood of Abel was crying out to God. But Jesus' blood is crying too. Do you hear it? Jesus' blood is also crying out to God, but it speaks a better word to God than that blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out, justice! And Jesus' blood cries out, forgive them. Jesus is superior to all the old blood. His blood supersedes and is far beyond what we would experience if it were only the blood of Abel and all those like Abel who really are crying for justice. So this section comes, that we come to now describes his, Jesus' superiority to the old priesthood. So he's superior to the angels, to Moses, to the old covenant, to the old sacrifices, to the old blood, and he's superior to the whole old priesthood. And that's the section that we've come into now in the book of Hebrews. It's a large section. Some of these others are kind of snippets to the early part of the book of Hebrews, but beginning about verse 14 of chapter 4 and running all the way through chapter 9 about verse 14, the author of the book of Hebrews is addressing this huge idea that Jesus is a better priest. Now, it's hard for us to kind of grasp why that would even be important because we don't operate in a culture in which it really even, and we don't have priests, and if we did, we'd think it was really weird. And, but, but in this culture, you need to understand that this was hugely important. This was a bedrock of their society. Who had established the priesthood? Well, God had. So we have to have an apologetic. We have to have a reason why there would be someone coming in from outside the Aaronic priesthood who would be able to do the job of priest and do it far, far better. And so we have this whole section of chapters addressing the fact that Jesus is superior to the old priesthood. And it addresses it in several ways. It expresses his superiority in several ways. Now we're building to that idea that Jesus is interceding for me, so I'm safe. But in order to see that, you need to understand that that's because he's a better priest. That's the whole flow of the book. And so to understand that, it points out to us that Jesus is superior to the old priesthood in several ways. Number one, in, in uh, chapter 7 here, it says that Jesus is superior to the old priesthood by virtue of his indestructible life. If you look here in verses 15, let me get back there, in about verse 15, through verse 19, it reads this way. This becomes, it says, even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Are you with me? Not on the basis of lineage. It's not on the basis of genealogy. It's not just because you are the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so, who is the son of Aaron. It's not on that base anymore. There's another basis, and it's, it's not on the basis of lineage, but on the basis of the fact that he 
has an indestructible life. It's by the power of an indestructible life. May I ask you what a genealogy proves about every one of us? That's exactly what it proves. It proves that everyone dies. Because you trace back up the family tree very far, and you're talking about only dead people. That's what a genealogy proves. And do you know that your place in the genealogy affirmed the very same truth for you? You will die. I will die. But Jesus comes onto the scene from another tribe, Judah, and he assumes the responsibilities as priest, not on the basis of the fact that he descended from Aaron and all those who followed, who all died, but on the basis of his indestructible life. Now, we'll look at that a little bit more in a a few minutes, but I want you to understand that as a basis. So Jesus is superior to the old priesthood because he's not just a part of a list of dead people, but because he has the power of an indestructible life. Now, remember, we're talking ultimately here about Jesus' intercession for you. Why is Jesus effective as an intercessor? Because he's a better priest. And why is he a better priest? He never dies. We're going to come back to that. But I want to show you another reason why Jesus' priesthood is better and superior to the old priesthood. And that's because the old priesthood was made without an oath. But this priesthood, Jesus' priesthood, is made with an oath. And the oath of God himself. If you look at about verse 20 here, it says, This priesthood was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Jesus was made a priest by an oath, the very oath of God. If you look back at about verse 13 of chapter 6, listen to the oath that God made to Abraham and understand the certainty of an oath made by God. For when God, it says in verse 13 of chapter 6, made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now listen to the explanation of that in verse 16, because the author goes on to explain what he just said. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, now follow the logic. This is God making an oath. This is God making an oath to Abraham in chapter 6. And it says here, people always make an oath by one that is greater than them. What are we going to do? Who's greater than God? Well, there is no one greater than God. And so God does what is absolutely astounding in making this oath. Listen to verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly, more certainly, more absolutely surely to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Who did God swear by? By himself. 
He could swear by no greater. So he swore by himself and in that set it as an absolute certain thing that what he promised to Abraham would indeed come to pass. And it's by his own oath that now he makes Jesus the better priest of a better covenant. The old priesthood, they arrived at the priesthood because they were the next in line. Jesus came to the priesthood by the very oath of God who swears and will not change his mind in verse, uh, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 7. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. In the New Testament, you find that people were making oaths by strange things like the the gold of the temple versus the temple or the offering made on the altar versus the altar. And you find Jesus countering that. But the point is, an oath is bringing us to the place of saying the most certain thing that we can possibly say. Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a thousand needles in my eye. Except for it's more than that. It's on the basis of of a vow, of a commitment, of an oath saying this is in fact what will be done. And God himself, who could swear by no greater, swore by himself, Jesus is priest forever. So he's a better priest. None of the old priests had that oath made to them. None of the old priests could say they could arrive at that priesthood by anything other than being the next in line to receive the priesthood. But there's another reason why Jesus' priesthood is superior, and that's because the old priesthood was temporary, but this priesthood is permanent. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, if you look back just a little ways, in verse 11, we come to a fairly familiar passage. And I want to point out one very important thing out of this section of Scripture here. In verse 11 it says, Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the children of Israel. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now listen, and no creature is hidden from his, from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's pretty stunning. You understand that we've returned to our pre-fall condition in the eyes of God. In other words, we're totally naked before God. Fig leaves don't help. All the things that we do to, uh, to try to tout our own personal righteousnesses, righteousnesses do not stand before God. He sees through all our facades. He understands the very thoughts and intents of our heart. So we need someone who can stand before God and intercede on our behalf. You know, I don't know about you, but I suspect I do. And I suspect you're like me. If you really spend any time looking inside, and I wouldn't recommend you do it for too terribly long, it's pretty depressing. It's pretty sad. Because you know what I find inside me? All kinds of corruption of the natural man. 
all kinds of selfishnesses and, and, uh, and ideas that are bent against God. Now, the beautiful thing is that we have someone else living inside of us, an external righteousness that now resides in us by the Holy Spirit. But if you just look at yourself, so just for a moment, just look at yourself, only for a moment, and I think you find the same thing. That's because our process of being made to look like Jesus is not yet complete. That's sanctification. And so in the process of growing into the likeness of Jesus, we need someone who can stand on our behalf before the Father. We need someone who can intercede for us. We need a priest whose priesthood is superior to all those priests who went before, who arrived there simply by lineage because they were the next in line in a line of dying people. We need someone whose priesthood is permanent. You know, one of the reasons that it's really important for a priesthood to be permanent is because sinful men were priests before. And you know they made bad decisions. They made really bad decisions. In fact, you don't need to go any further than the four Gospels to find a really bad decision by a high priest. Guys, this was the high priest. And the high priest was a part of the process that sent Jesus to the cross. That was a terrible decision. That was the worst decision that possibly could have been made. For us, of course, it's life and hope and freedom and joy and beauty, and it was the plan of God, and it was incontrovertible, but, but, from the standpoint of just the human responsibility of that priest, he utterly failed. He completely missed the God who he's supposed to be serving, and instead sent that God-man, the Lord Jesus, to the cross. How, you know, you can go from a good administration to a bad administration, and essentially the priest holding that reign of power so you might have a good priest in this particular time, but the high priest dies. And now you come to another priest. Uh, just look back at the priests of the Old Testament. Uh, try Eli, for example. Do you remember Eli? In the time of Samuel? And so Eli was what kind of a high priest? He wasn't too good a priest, was he? In fact, he overlooked when his sons did debauched things in the temple took the meat, were very immoral. He just overlooked it. Now, he was a sort of passively bad high priest. There were more aggressively bad high priests like Caiaphas. But then here's a passively... Well, uh, that's terrible. That's terrible. But you know what? We don't know what's going to come in the next one. Even if you have a good priest now, if he dies, we don't know what we're going to get tomorrow. So take Samuel who followed Eli. Here's Samuel the prophet, the great prophet... And his sons were not like him. Because Samuel eventually had to die. He slept with his fathers. And his sons followed him and they were completely unlike Samuel himself. Or, or, or take even David and his son Solomon. For all of the good things that can be said about Solomon, he did not exactly follow Solomon's or David's ways. And the result, of course, was eventually for Solomon's son, Rehoboam, to end up with a divided kingdom. So you couldn't count on it. You, because we're human, because we die, because we're subject to mortality, even if this is a good time, that good time is going to come to an end. So it's very important 
that this priesthood of the Lord Jesus is a priesthood that is absolutely permanent, that nothing can end. Really, there will never be a time in this life when we will not have need of mercy and grace. We can't just hope that the next administration will be good because we're going to need mercy and grace tomorrow. Those are the gifts of God that are found only at the throne of God Almighty, whose eyes see through the fig leaves of all our self-righteous efforts and reveal us as dirty, naked, and utterly ashamed. We have to have a permanent intercessor. We must have someone who stands on call 24-7 all the time to plead our case before the righteous judge. We have to have an intercessor who will save us to the uttermost, to the very end, not just halfway, we have to have an intercessor who lives forever. Now I want to show you just how important it is that Jesus lives forever in just a very quick run through Hebrews here. In verse 6, in verse 19 through 20, uh, it says that this high priest lives forever. Verse seven, uh, Chapter 7 and verse 3, it says he continues forever. In chapter 7 and verse 8, it says it's testified that he lives. In verse 16 of the same chapter, it says that he has the power of an indestructible life. We just looked at that. In 21 of the same chapter of chapter 7, you are a priest forever. In 23, many priests because of death, but 24, he is permanent. His priesthood is permanent because he continues forever. In verse 28, made perfect forever. And now you get a little window into the grief of the cross that maybe you never understood before. Think about it. The disciples did not fully understand what was going on, but there's this longing in every heart for permanence. Eternity's been set in our hearts. When Jesus died, when the cross happened, the disciples didn't just lose their friend and their mentor. They lost their hope of eternal deliverance. They lost the hope of being saved to the uttermost. What a great grief. But we know the other side of the story. That he now lives. That he rose from the dead and lives forever. And so Hebrews is saying he died but now he lives forever. And that certainty, that alive forever makes his priesthood absolutely superior to the whole old priesthood because it is permanent. He lives forever to intercede for us before the Father. So now I want to just take a few moments to say, so how does he do it? How does he intercede for us before the Father? And the first thing is that he intercedes regarding our sin and our guilt. We just took a brief look inside. And if you look very far, you know that there is sin. And guilt. Because no one goes through life, not even after they love and know the Lord Jesus, without sinning against him. There, I've met a man who actually believed that he no longer sinned. That was a sin. Sinless perfectionism is a doctrine, but it's completely fallacious. It's heresy. There is no truth to it. We do not arrive in this life. We do arrive in the life to come. 
But in this life, sinless perfectionism is simply a heresy. He really believed that. Uh, as I said, that was, his, that was an indication of sin right there. But we are full of needs for someone to intercede for us regarding our sin and our guilt. If we don't have someone who intercedes for us on that basis, then we are lost. You can look at Deuteronomy chapter 9 for an evidence of another intercessor to whom Jesus is compared in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 25. You have Moses interceding for the people. It says, I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. Did they deserve to be destroyed? Oh yes, they had made themselves a golden calf. They had worshipped another god. And so Moses says, I interceded for you. I stood in the gap between you and God to make intercession on your behalf. I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, destroy not your people and your heritage whom you have redeemed through your greatness whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Intercession is an investment. And you can hear something of the passion of Moses' investment in these people as he's prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights pleading, pleading, Oh God, don't destroy. He's interceding. But, you know, uh, you see another evidence of that in, in Genesis, and you hear Abraham pleading for people who did not deserve to be pardoned, and you might remember him bargaining with God in chapter 18 of, of Genesis, saying, if in this area of Sodom and Gomorrah there are just this many, or just this many, that's intercession, someone who's standing in the gap before God, who's connecting with God on behalf of someone else and pleading for them. You have in Numbers an amazing story of Moses, of Aaron himself, an intercessor by virtue of his priesthood, in this case doing what he should have done in Numbers and in verse chapter 16 and in verse 41. It's worth looking at. Number 16, verse 41. This is after the story of Dathan and Abiram and Korah and the earth opening up to swallow the people who had. Uh, committed sin against God. Verse 41, the next day all the people of Israel grumbled again against Moses and against Aaron, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. Well, that would be a good thing to say at about that moment, after the earth had just swallowed the others up. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And, the, and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Sin always requires justice. And the people had sinned again. On the heels of their sin, they sinned again, and God said, Get away from them, because I'm going to utterly consume them. I'm going to destroy them. And they, Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So, Moses, uh, so Aaron took it as Moses said. 
and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. Now listen, this is intercession. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. That's just an earthly priest who arrives at that priesthood by virtue, in this case, of God's appointment, who, but who established a lineage that was just a lineage of dead people, one after another, but who could stand in the gap before God. So it says, Aaron stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Jesus intercedes regarding our sin and our guilt. How does that make you feel? He intercedes for you regarding your sin and your guilt. It's as if he runs out, as the plague has already begun, and, and runs between us and the Father and intercedes for us. We have a holy God, a holy and righteous God, and righteousness must always be done. And so Jesus runs out and says, as the intercessor, let it be done on me and spare this one. Jesus is your intercessor, but only if you take that joyous opportunity of embracing him as such. If you have truly come to the Lord Jesus, if you belong to him, then he is interceding right now for you. Not just all the sins you did in the past, but the sins that you will yet commit even today. He interposes his own blood on your behalf. So Jesus intercedes regarding our sin and our guilt, but he also intercedes regarding the accusations of the enemy. You know there's someone else in heaven other than the Lord Jesus at times at the throne of God. And we know this because we're told it in the Bible. Do you know who else is there? At times, we aren't told how often, sometimes Satan's there. That's exactly right. And do you know what Satan says about you to God? It's not good. He accuses you before the Father. And here's the dangerous part about it. Here's the really scary part about that if you don't have an intercessor. He's right on a good number of the things he says about you. Satan's right on a lot of things he says about you. Not everything. And so if he simply were to point the finger at you before the throne of God and you had no intercessor, you couldn't even defend yourself in truth. Look at the book of Job. That's where we actually learn that Satan, it's one of the places we learn that, that Satan can stand there at the throne of God and, and um, accuse. In Job chapter 1, And in verse 9, this is Satan standing before God in heaven. Satan answered the Lord, said, Does Job fear God for no reason? 
know what that's called? It's an accusation. Is there no, is, I mean, look, God, Job only fears you because he gets good things from you. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And by the way, is that a true statement? Had God done that? Yes, he had. So, Job sa- or so Satan says to God, that's the only reason that he cares anything about you. Have you not put a hedge around him? But stretch out your hand, verse 11, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And so the contest begins. And in verse, chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, we hear, we hear that same accusation coming back again. Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life, because Job didn't curse God the first time. He passed the test. So Satan stands there too. And you know he stands there not only from in Job, Job is the oldest book in the, in the Bible, but he stands there in heaven accusing the brethren all the way to the last book of the Bible. You can read about it in Revelation. In Revelation, it's the accuser of the brethren who is there in heaven. That's the accuser of you and me. That's Satan standing in heaven accusing you to the Father. And there sometimes are good reasons. There's quite a few good reasons that he can give. Truthful reasons why you should stand accused. But you have an intercessor. You have Jesus himself, whose priesthood endures forever, standing and saying, sometimes he must say, that is indeed true of Rob. He has sinned in that way, and he, he will sin in that way, and he fails often in this way. But I paid for I need an intercessor. You need someone to intercede for you, to say, I have paid the price for this one. He's bought by my blood, and I love him. Jesus is that intercessor for us. In him, we've become the very righteousness of God so that now he ever lives, always lives to plead his blood on our behalf. Jesus intercedes regarding the accusations of the enemy. It's our privilege to join with Job and when bad things happen, to rest our case on our intercessor. But he does something else. He intercedes regarding our faith. Now, there's a pretty significant misnomer in much of the evangelical church that we bring nothing to God except our faith. But that's just heresy. And here's why. You don't bring anything to God. Even the faith you have is given by God. And I want to show you in a very brief way just now why you need someone to intercede regarding your faith. Listen to what it says in Mark. In, well, let's go actually, let's go to um, Luke chapter 17. Look quickly at Luke chapter 17 with me. And in Luke 17, you see that Jesus has just been talking to the disciples. 
about the importance of forgiveness. In Luke 17, he says in verse 3, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That was astonishing to the disciples. And they answer with this plea. Lord, increase our faith. You may not have thought of forgiveness before as being a function of faith. But the disciples recognized in fact that it is. That you can't forgive unless you can see God beyond the offender. That's another discussion for another time. But, but that's very true. You cannot forgive someone unless you can actually see God beyond the one who has offended you. You don't have the power to forgive. Forgiveness is a divine attribute. And so the disciples wisely, rightly said and asked for the one thing that Jesus could give them that would make it possible to forgive. When they looked at the impossible, I forgive him seven times. If he forgives me seven times, if he offends me seven times in a day, I'm to forgive him again and again and again and again. Count that to seven. And Jesus says, yes, they say, increase our faith. They appropriately appealed to the intercessor who could pray for them, who could give them the faith they need. <clears throat> but we get an even more pungent illustration of that at the conclusion of the same book, the book of Luke, when we hear the betrayal of Simon Peter Jesus turns him in verse 31 and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, that's the accuser, has demanded to have you. So this is what the accuser wants. I want to have this one. He's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, we know what happens immediately following this. Jesus denies Jesus, Je uh, Peter denies Jesus three times. But what did Jesus pray? That Peter's faith would not fail, that it would not die, that it wouldn't cease forever. So I want to ask you, does God answer Jesus' prayers? Well, I mean, the tomb of Lazarus is a pretty good illustration of how he answers Jesus' prayers. To call a dead man out of a tomb by praying, I would say he answers right now with astonishing, incredible results. He connects the divine power as no person, as no Edith Crowell for me, or as no whoever it is for you could ever intercede. He intercedes on the basis of his own life, his own blood for you regarding your faith. Now, that's what he did for Peter. He said, I, I prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail, that it wouldn't die. Now, it sure looked like it failed. I mean, he denied Jesus three times. It looked bad. Did Satan sift Peter? Jesus didn't pray that Satan would not sift him. He prayed that Peter's faith wouldn't die. Nothing kills faith Faster, 
than a faith fracture. What's injured, if not bound up by the intercessor, can only break. But Jesus stands between us and a failing faith. In verse 60 of the same chapter, chapter 22 of Luke, we read that Jesus turned and looked at Peter so that even in those darkest hours when Peter had denied him, he, the intercessor, stood with his faltering disciple. Really, Jesus, in one sense, held Peter up, even at the end, and kept his faith from failing. Jesus, in one sense, spread his arms over Peter, protecting him from the enemy barrage that could destroy his faith. In, in another sense, like Aaron of old, he ran out between Peter and the impending judgment, atoning, healing, and taking the righteous wrath for Peter's denial, even as he stood there in the judgment hall. Jesus was prepared to pay the price for that sin of Peter's denial and plead for the Father, plead with the Father on Peter's behalf, even as Peter denied him. What a God. What an intercessor. What an intercessor who would even appeal on, at the moment of my failing as he did for Peter. Jesus intercedes regarding our sin and our guilt. He intercedes regarding enemy accusations, even when they're well-founded enemy accusations. And he intercedes regarding our faith. Robert Murray Machane says this, I'm often tempted to say, how can this man, Jesus, save us? How can Christ in heaven deliver me from the lusts which I feel raging in me and the nets I feel enclosing me? This is the father of lies again. He, Jesus, Hebrews chapter 7, he is able to save to the uttermost. I ought to study Christ as the intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was most to be tempted. I am on his breastplate. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Jesus is your intercessor. I appreciate McShane's way of looking at it. If Jesus were sitting here, had his hand on your shoulder, and he was praying for you, it'd be hard to be afraid of almost anything. The king of kings, the God of the universe, the one who gave his life for me, the one who's saving me and redeeming me and taking me through the trials and difficulties and circumstances and challenges of this life. This one has his hand upon my shoulder and he is praying for me. And we know that God hears his prayer. There is no other intercessor who can pray like Jesus can. And he can pray because he knows your need. He knows your struggles. He knows you and he still loves you. He cares for you. He knows how you're going to fail. And he's still praying for you. It's not hard to imagine being unable to fear anything if he had his hand on my shoulder physically praying for me. But Machine says, really, it doesn't make any difference because he is praying 
for me. Jesus is our intercessor. And because he's our intercessor, because he's alive forever, he is uniquely qualified as the one and only intercessor who is able to save us at all times in every circumstance completely. I really don't know what all you're going through. I know some of the things that some of you are going through. And I know that we have quite a lot in our body right here that is a point of suffering or a trial or a difficulty or a circumstance we'd sure like to change. Jesus, in that circumstance, is able to deliver you. Get one circumstance in your mind that you would love to change. He's able to save you from that. He's able to deliver you, and he's able to do it because he lives forever as the perfect intercessor, the one and only who is qualified to intercede for the, with, before the Father on your behalf. Maybe your particular circumstance or suffering is even the fallout from a previous sin. Jesus intercedes for you. Maybe it has nothing to do with your sin, but it's someone sinning against you. Jesus knows, and he intercedes for you before the Father. And his prayer will be heard. To say it more simply, Jesus' indestructible life guarantees his endless and efficacious intercession on our behalf. There's never a time when Jesus is going to quit. He's not going to hang it up and say, that's the end, I'm done. He's never going to die. His life is indestructible, and so his intercession on my behalf and on your behalf is absolutely endless. You can count on him tomorrow and the next day and the next day and all the way through till you meet God himself. Jesus intercedes for you. And to put it most simply of all, because Jesus lives and intercedes, we're safe. We're safe. So does that mean that really everything is okay in your life? It's all hunky-dory, nothing bad, it's okay. If we were just a little more optimistic, a little cheerier about life, that it'd be all right. No. No. That's not what it means. It means something even more beautiful. Instead of just a Pollyanna view of the world, which is complete fiction, it's a real view of the real suffering and the real struggles and the trials of life, but with Jesus interceding before the Father for you. So I'd like to invite you to do something this morning. You don't have to do it now, but as you leave this place, I would encourage you to do this. Think of what it is to now pray to the one who's praying for you. So that when you run into that difficulty, that circumstance, that challenge, that trial, whatever it is in your life that you're experiencing that you'd like to not have there, you hold hands with your intercessor who's speaking to God on your behalf He knows you, and he still loves you. It's a little shocking, but he does. 
He knows you like no one else, and he still interceding for you on the basis of his indestructible life and his efficacious blood for you. If you really don't know what it is to have an intercessor, I'd invite you to really consider what Jesus says when he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you've never actually come to Jesus and, and experienced the rest that he can give, the rest which brings you out of your own sin and suffering and doesn't expunge the suffering, but gives you a path through the suffering with one who knows you and loves you and will bring you to glory. Maybe you just need to come to the intercessor. But if you have, I'd encourage you to do like Machane urges us. I need to study the intercessor. I need to reach out. I need to pray to this one who even as I am praying to him is praying for me. Jesus is praying. Right now. For you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are absolutely in awe that you live forever to not only save us to the uttermost, but to intercede for us. And that you're doing it right now. This isn't just something that's going to happen someday in the future. This isn't something that we can remember having happened long ago. This is something that's happening presently, whether it's the accusations of the enemy or whether it's a failing faith or whether it is a particular sin or a set of guilty shames that plague us. In all of these things, even now, you are interceding for us. And we just say thank you. Thank you that you know us and you still love us. Thank you that you live to intercede for your people. We're your people and we're really glad to be called by your name and for the chance to call upon your name as the great intercessor. We worship you and honor you today. Amen.